Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding, and you're listening to Discover Someone Remarkable, conversations worth sharing. Join me as I interview passionate founders and industry experts, people who think differently, challenge the status quo, and are building a legacy. People who I consider truly remarkable. In today's episode, I interview Simon Harridance, an investment advisor and director of Lugano Partners, an investment management firm providing highly personalized investment advice and strategy for high-income earners and wealthy families. Before founding Lugano Partners in 2015, Simon worked for two of the world's biggest investment banks. He's written a book on value investing titled Protecting What Hard Work Built and runs an investment fund. Today we discuss why he admires purpose-driven brands that choose to stand for something, how the market has reacted to COVID-19, his investment philosophy and how he stays calm and level-headed with so much noise and hysteria in the market. There are some valuable lessons on the importance of focus and removing distractions, what highly successful people share in common and how to select the right advisor. I've known Simon for close to eight years. He's a great mentor and friend, and I'm excited to share this conversation. Disclaimer, the information contained in this episode is general in nature and does not take into account your personal situation. You should consider whether the information is appropriate to your needs and where appropriate, seek professional advice from a financial advisor. So good day, Simon. Thanks so much for coming on the show. No problem, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> we always kick these things off the same way, so with a simple icebreaker. So what's your favorite brand and why? So by brand, um, I don't really think of logo. I think of company because I think that, you know, the brand um, reflects the way that the company has succeeded or failed or operated over time. And so as we've tried to build our business, like I, I really appreciate brands and companies that go against conventional wisdom um, that are sort of more defined by what they don't do than what they do do, um, which I find particularly challenging um, as a business owner. Um, And I also really like brands that aren't afraid to stand for something other than what they're best known for. Um, And that might be sort of a political or social issue. And so I think there's like three that I really admire and I'll, I'll run through them really quick. Like Apple is definitely one just because it's so big. You know, I think that the brand and their products are really cool, which is sort of well known. But I, I think that what they're sort of least known for is is that I really believe that their fame is, is as much to do with what they have chosen not to do than what they do do. Like they could literally make any product. Yeah. They could make, you know, they could bring out a TV tomorrow and it would probably be the biggest selling TV in the world, but they choose not to do that. Like you could, they are, I think now the second largest company by market cap in the world. And you could put all of um, all of their products on a, on a standard desk, which I think is like super impressive and, and taken a lot of constraint and focus, which has allowed all of their many thousands of employees to just all be focused on perfecting, you know, a very, very small number of products rather than sort of distance or disparate the, the energy across a large number of them. And I think that, you know, what's been clear, especially more recently, is that they're happy to take a view on issues around whether it be sexuality, um, whether it be privacy. Um, and I think that's particularly due to Tim Cook um, because he's gay himself. But for a large company to be willing to do that, I, I really admire. And I think that, as they get larger and larger, I think that some of those values will, will be diluted over time. But I think that they're a remarkable business because of that. Two less known businesses that I really, really like for similar reasons. And I think because they're smaller, they're sort of even more pronounced around those issues. The first one's Basecamp. Um, they make a sort of, it's not quite CRM, but it's like a team management um, software that we use. Um, they're privately owned. Um, they at last, they don't really disclose how big they are, but I think they've got like 150,000 customers. And I think what's great about them is that they've literally got one product and every single customer pays them exactly the same amount. You know, other businesses in the space have sort of said yes to a large number of customers and built different products for each of them. And, you know, I've done the math. Like they, they have 
130,000 customers, 50 staff might be a little bit more, and one product, which I find really, really, really impressive because all of those staff are just dedicated to that one product and perfecting it. And it's a product that they use and a product that they're really proud of. And um, the other thing that I really like about that business is that they're really not afraid to take a view on a whole range of issues, particularly those around sort of their type of software and their industry, which is tech. Um, The two founders are extremely outspoken. Um, It's been a big reason why I think that they've grown as a business because it's brought on attention, but um, they're willing to alienate themselves for something that they believe in, which is great. And to a lesser extent, there's this smaller business that um, I've just only recently found, which is a company called Red and White, that they make long-distance bib shorts for cycling, which is a sport that I'm just starting to get into. (laughs) And it was only recently that, the founder just sent an email out and said that he's actually cancelling all of the other products except this one single product, which meant, and he sort of gave the stats. And, and I think it, almost half of his business was sort of belonged to all of the other products, but then half of the business belonged to just that one bib short that they make, which is long distance, the long distance writing. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. You know, he's basically said goodbye to half of his revenue he could focus all of his energy and simplify his business down to one product. And I think that's such a bold move. And I've, I've got a lot of confidence that he's going to be all the better for it. So, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's three brands that I really like. And, mate, with recording this sort of um, amongst all of COVID-19, and obviously there's a lot of hysteria and a lot of noise in the market, but how have you seen the mm. stock market or share market react to covid well, what are we now? We're like late May. Late May, yeah. Yeah. So if you can simplify it right down, it's gone way down and then way up. And I think that if we did this, you know, podcast or this in this discussion in sort of mid April, there's no way that I would have sort of thought that was the case, not that we we're forecasting at the time. But yeah, I mean, this coronavirus is, has had and, and will continue to have like a remarkable negative impact on the economy in some ways it's unheard of particularly for the modern economy um uh huge spikes in unemployment huge amounts of debt being brought there'll be sort of unparalleled amounts of bankruptcies no doubt and consumer distress and for a period of time for a period of about six weeks that was reflected in markets where they sold off substantially around the world. During that time, governments have done a pretty solid job of throwing money at the system and supporting consumers and businesses. And to my surprise, the markets have sort of reacted really favorably to that. And we're not quite back to where we were, but you know, I think that we're back to levels that I don't think fully reflect the, the macro environment. So it's been a wild ride. Like there were, there were days that I've never witnessed, certainly. I mean, I was around during the GFC, um, not around during the tech crash, but there were days in March where the market was off 10%. And that, I mean, that's huge and probably in line with the issues that the economy was facing at the time that investors have chosen to sort of discount a lot of the risks that the economy has at the moment. And, and you know, we're back to go-go times. Yeah. And so what is your investment philosophy? Yeah, so we, we deploy or we use a value investment approach and it's a fairly common approach, whether it's actually practiced in common is another story. I think that to describe the approach, like everyone appreciates a bargain, right? And value investing is essentially purchasing bargains or purchasing assets and businesses for less than what we believe they are worth. And that difference, so the difference between our perception of value and the price that we're paying is considered to be the margin of safety. So that safety margin that protects us from things that are sort of unheard of or unexpected. The discipline of value investing was sort of coined originally by Benjamin Graham, who's the godfather of it and, and, and one of Warren Buffett's mentors and has since been made sort of famous by Buffett and has been a long-held tradition by a number of like quite well-known fund managers. And if you actually look at the better investors of the world scene, you would, say, you would see that the majority of them are value investors. But what's interesting is that very few people actually practice it. And I think that 
the reason why very few practice it is because it's sort of the intersection between finance and psychology and you know the analysis part of a company is like quite easy they teach it at uni they teach it at grad school but for an investor or for anyone to be able to remove themselves from the emotions that are involved in a big sell-off like what we had in March and even if you think that whether it be a Google or a Nine Entertainment or a bank or whatever it is that the company that you've done the work on, whether you think that's worth twice as much, being able and willing to step up and purchase that asset after it has fallen 10, 20, 30% and is falling 10% in a day when everyone you speak to, all they want to do is share with you doom and gloom. Being able to do that in that environment is very, very difficult. And I don't think many people are able to sort of distance themselves from their emotional inclination during those times. And so our whole approach sort of builds on that philosophy and much of the time really just prepares us for those moments where we're going to be offered those bargains, but drilling into us, you know, the ability and the preparedness to be able to step up and buy during those times. And how do you do that? I mean, how do you stay calm and sort of focused when there's so much hysteria or noise around? Yeah, I think that's like, that's the big challenge. Because as I said, like, there are so many people around that can model out, prepare a financial model. There are so many people that can, can see whether a company is good or not. And so it's the psychological aspect of investing that we've chosen and we think that we need to continue to spend a lot of time focusing just like an investor or just like a sportsman would like prepare and visualize their big sporting match. It's funny, like with my family during, during March and April, we're actually overseas for a big, a, a small part of it. And I, I was joking at the time, but I really wasn't because it was like our Super Bowl. You know, it's, we, we've been preparing for a long time for an event like that. And yeah. if we hadn't, we wouldn't have been able to take the action that we were. And so, so in terms of like being prepared, I live quite a long way away from certainly the big CBDs in Australia. I think that that helps me sort of stay calm. I also sort of curate the information that, that comes to me and make sure that it's not sort of sensationalist and is written by the people that I think that are going to give me sensible, factual rational information and then the feedback loop so you know whether it be our philosophy our tactics or the investment ideas that we come up with i'm very careful with who i share them with and not necessarily want to share them only with people that are going to agree with me but certainly those that sort of align with our philosophy and are going to give me a non-emotional response to it rather than you know one that is just going to give an indication of of what everyone else is thinking because that's that's the trouble is that the best investments i think and and history tells us are those that most people disagree with so a good investment is not one that everyone agrees with because a consensus view is already reflected in the price and so the majority of our best investments or our best investments are those that it's actually hard to find people that agree with them with us at the time so it's important to make sure that the people that surround you are able to think independently with that. And, and then just like around the focus bit and the focus for us is that if we were investing during March or April or in any other big collapse and had a short-term time horizon, there's no way that we would be able to have the confidence to do that. So in terms of focus, our focus is not on one month, two months, three months. It's on two years, three years, five years, seven years, you know, and in fact, it's always more than two. It's usually three to five. And in some cases, much more. I think that being, having a long-term orientation, having some investors and clients that are willing to think long-term, that's the single biggest advantage any investor can have. And I think that making decisions during those short-term sort of climactic events um, become a hell of a lot easier when you think about the performance and the value of that business in a five-year context rather than a five-week context. Yeah. And what sort of conversations were you having or are you having with clients at this time? Yeah, so not so much now. I mean, things have calmed down a bit. So, you know, there, there were some, 
some small mistakes, not big ones, fortunately, that we made during that situation that we're sort of taking stock of now and spending a lot of time prepared for. And for any clients that might have been a little bit nervous during that time, more nervous than we felt that they should have been, we're investing a lot of time with them on re-establishing the investment philosophy. But in the heat of the moment, the conversations were sort of in two parts. They were a check-in just to make sure that the nerves were okay. You know, I think that, you know, during those times, if we haven't instilled the philosophy right, if we aren't on the same page, then we haven't done the right thing over the previous three years. So for many, many, every time we've sort of gotten together before February and March this year, we've sort of established sort of a modus operandi of we're not investing too much now. There will be an opportunity. When that opportunity comes, it's going to be yuck. It's going to feel ugly. There'll be lots of people worried that down moment. And in the main, it was just a reminder of that. It's like, this is our time. And in a weird kind of way, like, the market didn't stay down for nearly as long as we thought. And so I think like most investors, we didn't buy nearly as much as we would have liked, but we did. We did buy and we were buying on most of those big down days. And we did that because we were able to talk to our clients. They were on board. They were expecting it. And then there was the strategic discussions around we're ready for this. We're thinking long-term. We like this business. We're going to buy it today. And that got the tick and then there was like the the more tactical discussions around what we're going to buy and explaining that. But again, you know, largely those discussions were had in the years beforehand. We knew what we liked, we knew what we wanted to buy and it was more so just sort of making sure that everyone was comfortable to continue to proceed as we'd planned. Yeah, cool. And so Simon, why Logano? How's Logano different to other investment managers or advisors? Logano partners, I should say. Yeah, so I think that I was talking to someone about investing earlier today and it's like there is no one best way to invest because ultimately like people need to have an investment philosophy and your investment philosophy is a reflection of your personality. And yeah. so in much the same way as, you know, I would choose to wear different clothes to you every day or eat different food to you, Dan, even though we probably have similar diets. Similar diets. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly with diet. Yeah. Um, but I, um, but yeah, like, so Lugano is different and isn't necessarily better or worse than many others. But I think that the best way to answer it is, is more so like in why we did it. And it yeah. was because I spent, you know, the early, the first sort of eight years of my career inside of big um, wealth managers or investment banks. And there are a couple of things that I observed in those environments that just sort of inclined me to want to go out and set up our own thing. And the first of that was that I think that investing and investing decisions becomes really difficult when you're managing a huge amount of money because you're less nimble. You've got a lot of opportunities close to you. Then there's also the institutional imperative that Warren Buffett talks about all the time. It's like when you're in a big investment company, basically the decisions are often made by a salaried employee, not necessarily the founder of the business. And so their priority is to not risk their career. So in a big company, they're far less willing to risk either their P&L or their reputation in order to make a bold decision for a client. Whereas if you look at any of the entrepreneurs that we deal with, you know, all of them are willing to make decisions that are against the norm, against the grain. That's what got them into the position that they were. And investing to me, the best investing is against the grain. And so I wanted to sort of sit myself in an environment where I could operate against the norm and against the grain because that's where I felt that the best decisions could be made. And then just like, I just wanted to have the freedom to, to live a better life for myself and a better life with my clients. So more freedom to operate on that. I looked around the environment and not just the firm that I work for, but across the industry. And I just, I wasn't overly inspired by, by the environment and generally by the people. I'm really close to a lot of those people as friends, but in terms of the environment that that put out, you turned up every day and you tried to make money for the firm and you left. Whereas I wanted, you know, I've got an 
number of personal relationships with my clients and I wanted the relationships to extend way beyond what, you know, the P&L of my business or their P&L would be. And by setting up a small private practice, I was able to make day-to-day decisions that sort of prioritise the relationships over the P&L. And so that's what we did and that's what we're going to stand for and I'm really proud of it. And you're in your fifth year now. I know that because we started at the same time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Actually, our first client, which is pretty cool. And, you know, still working today or working together today. Mate, what is Logano? Where did the name come from? I mean, I know this, but for the audience, I think it's a really great story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the name I came from, the, the name well, Logano is the suburb that I grew up in in Sydney. And, was special to me for a number of reasons. You know, my background and my childhood, I think, obviously had a huge impact on the person that I am today. We weren't, certainly weren't an overly, you know, lavish family or wealthy family. We were a middle-class family. And I, I consider myself, I came from a childhood that instilled really high-quality values in that whole suburb and that whole um, area. I had really solid families with really strong family values and I wanted that instilled in this business. The, the sort of unique part of the name is that it was named, I believe it was named after Lake Lugano, which is a town in Switzerland. And that was cool because the firm that I came from was also Swiss. And the funny part is, is that I, Lugano is spelt with an R, but Lake Lugano is spelt without the R. So I think they spelled it wrong on the way through. <laughs> so yeah, I just like, I think I articulated before that there were personal reasons. When I started this business, it was not a financial one. You know, there were a range of options open to me that would have put a lot more money in my pocket and my family's pocket. I made the decision to start this business for non-financial reasons. I thought it was the best place for my clients. I thought it was the best thing for me as a person and for me as an advisor. And so having the name that reminded me of my background was really important and it's a daily reminder of, you know, sort of our purpose for being here. Yeah, that's cool. And Simon, as a business owner, what's been one of your greatest challenges? (laughs) Yeah, so I think like I was thinking when, when I was listing or thinking about my favorite brands, I felt like that was just a sort of one of those mirror sessions or I was just sort of identifying the issues that were most important to me and or congruent to the things that I'm working on because, you know, you start this business and, you know, if anyone sort of wants to come and support you, I was fortunate enough to have our clients support us from the early days, but any new client, you sort of want to say yes to everyone. And (laughs) I think we spent, (laughs) I think we spent, first couple of years, you know, going down, not vastly different, but taking on some clients that weren't necessarily aligned with our values, who aren't clients anymore, but also committing to sort of certain types of advice and certain tasks that were not core. And so we're doing a lot of work on it now. We've come a long way in 12 months, but I think that, you know, being willing to say no, being willing to do less, being willing to just identify a few key things that we're really good at and just say that these are the things that we're going to focus on. And that might mean that there are people that we can't deal for. And that might mean that there's essentially less revenue at that point in time. But but I can already see the benefits of making those decisions and they're going to come to us more and more. But when you've got a group of people, a team, a high quality team that we've got, all focused on just one or, you know, a small number of core principles, core products, core services, then the quality just has to rise. Whereas if you've got that same group of people that are focusing on five, six or seven, then the quality has to take a hit. To get to that point is is really difficult, but I get daily counselling. (laughs) And no, we've we've made some bold decisions and 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 uh, a while ago and it's and it's really it's really paying off so how do you go about saying no to potential new clients how early on do you do it i mean is it like an initial phone call and you you realize it then or is it you know do you have times where you're actually you know part way down the road sort of onboarding someone and then you realize that hey this isn't going to be the right fit so i always knew that i was supposed to be doing that but never had you know a good 
like I didn't really believe it. And what triggered what triggered it for me because I always end up going, oh yeah, yeah, I'll just say yes to this one. And then, but what triggered it for me was this belief. Like so, like we have these really valuable clients right now and they pay us for a given, like a very specific either core bit of advice or, you know, to run our fund. And I now really, really believe that any deviation away from what they're paying for is actually going to be to their detriment. It's going to actually disadvantage or devalue the quality of what we do for them. And so the day that, I realized that it just gave me the confidence to be able to say no to anything that sort of that wasn't in line or put at risk what we were already being employed to do. So it wasn't necessarily a choice for me. It's like, no, I'm sorry, I actually can't do that because I've got these clients here that are paying for us to do this for them. And so anything outside of that is actually going to sort of be a what do I say like a movement away from the promise that we made and yeah. ever since I had that realization it sort of all became a lot easier and as a result has sort of dramatically even even further improved the standards that we had for the clients that are paying us and, and um, yeah it's worked out really well. And so the clients that you do have how do you attract them or the clients that are right for Lugano or there is a great fit between Lugano partners and a type of client? How do you um, go about attracting them? In the early days, it was like, so me and my business partner at the time, I did some cold calling, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think, I don't know if it, no, there was a couple of times when it worked, but I, I really believe that, and I, I was saying this to someone that was asking for some advice the other day, things are supposed to be, like, things worth striving for are supposed to be difficult. Yeah. And the fact that we did the cold calling, it wasn't, the greatest tactical move, but I think because we were willing to do something that was quite difficult, you know, calling a fairly well-known wealthy person who might have a reputation for, for, for being difficult to get hold of, that's a fairly imposing task for someone starting out in a new industry. But we did it and we had some really uncomfortable discussions. We had some really good ones as well and met some great people along the way. And even if that specific exercise didn't bring fruit, I really believe that because we did that, then good luck came through other ways. And so most of our client base has come from either, you know, a couple of people at the inception of of that process, but also um, some really, really great other advisors. So whether it be accountants at, at other firms who over time have seen value in, in what we do and have been willing to entrust us with their own relationships, which is a huge responsibility and one that I never take lightly. And then also some referrals from um, existing clients. But we purposely aren't looking or trying to grow our numbers of clients into the you know, hundred. It's one of the big reasons why we started this is because I wanted the ability to say no and, and keep our client numbers small so that we could maintain really high levels of service. And so, you know, even if we do get a referral, we have a really clear idea of what our ideal client is. And that might be sort of personal sort of aspects, might also be value. And so, yeah, we're, we're, we're really keen to grow but it's really important that we're able to grow with people that sort of align with us and will one day really appreciate what we do. And so most of those come from, from introductions with people that already do use our services. So you would see some really successful and high net worth people and families. What are some common commonalities of these people or shared personality traits and things like that? Yeah, that's a, I think it's a really cool question. I think that I really enjoy investing and it's like it's my key passion, but I think one of the most fortunate things that that I get in my job is the ability to sort of interact and have a really close relationship with some like really remarkable people. And because if we're looking after wealthy people, like most wealthy people are, are, are a lot older and if they're not, then they've probably got remarkable stories themselves. And so I think, you know, the common element of those that have not just built wealth but sustained it and also managed to 
maintain really good reputations for it. I think there's a couple of things. So humility is like the big one. And, you know, we've got some clients that could easily be passed off as, you know, they're they're at the top of their game. Um, They're quite well known. And I think sometimes they spend more time with our junior staff than than me. You know, I've seen them in their work environments and every morning they make a point of greeting everyone in their firm or in their business and knowing them by name and asking them, you know, how their families are or their newborn child. You know, I think that it's it's such an impressive attribute, one that's made a big impression on me that, you know, no matter how big you get, whether it be socially or financially, that, you know, the guys that I respect the most are those that still take the time to, or just remember where they are and have stayed super, super humble through that process. So that's an attribute that, that I just like think is like really remarkable and really impressive. I think that another one is is the integrity that they've carried themselves with. Like for someone to to build a business or a fortune and maintain it for decades is actually really difficult. And it's difficult one because like you've got the temptation to sort of get greedy and whether it be over leverage or go down businesses business paths that you don't know, but also because like Australia's got this tall poppy syndrome and the higher you get, people look for reasons to cut you down. And so if you haven't been cut down, it's because you've acted with integrity all the way through, which has carried on to like a really, really supreme reputation. And so there's some of our clients that, you know, have literally spent 60, 70 years building their fortunes and at every step along the way have always questioned whether what they're doing isn't necessarily the thing that's going to help them the most financially, but is it the right thing to do? And, you know, if their mum, whether they're still around or past, would be proud of their actions, should they do it? And so that's that's another one. And I think also just like one that's systematic in our own investment process, which is just thinking long-term. So like this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, and that you don't need to do everything today. And if you really want to build sustainable, like true businesses and fortunes, then you want to be making decisions that are going to be paying off in 5, 10, 15 years, not necessarily five weeks because they're the ones that are really going to work out for you. So um, they're probably the three, um, humility, integrity, and and just maintaining a long-term orientation. Yeah, that's great. Completely agree with um, with all three, but also that long-term orientation i mean yeah i think it's something that we forget these days and people people are drawn to these sort of like overnight success stories or these get rich quick schemes and ideas and and like this flash in the like yes they might be cool but they're often just a flash in the pan and you know they take up headlines or grab attention but but really like true mark of success would be how do you build and run a business for 70 or 80 years like that's incredible it's Super important, and people always say think long term, think long term, and it's like almost like a catchphrase. But when it's put in practice, it's actually really difficult to put in practice because, like, one of the things that we think about a lot is like human fallacies or human emotional biases, and and one of those is is humans' desire to sort of want to get paid quickly, and and that's I think systematic in most investors' investment decisions, but. One of the things is being sort of a young advisor, but managing money for people who are of like older generations and some of them have since passed away is that I've had the really good insight into seeing the benefits of making long-term decisions. You know, some of our biggest clients made their first investments 40 years ago and I've got one client in particular who passed away um, recently. He, um, he still owns assets that he made all those years ago and you know he had drilled into him certain methods to stop him from doing things to stop him from wanting to tinker with his portfolio because he just knew that if he held it out he'd be just fine and I had the good fortune of being able to see the fruits of all of that but had I've seen that 20 years ago that was just like it was like the initial part of the construction that as a young person, I probably would have wanted to tinker with it and change with it. And you know, there was this very wise person that was saying, listen, young chap, 
you just leave things as they are and in 20 years things are going to be just fine and they really were and so I've had the good fortune of being able to see the benefits of thinking long term and I try and emulate that in our strategy. So going back to when you started out as a investment manager or advisor, I mean you would have been what in your mid-20s? Yep. So how do you go about building trust and credibility as a you know 25 year old speaking to someone who's maybe in their 60s and sort of trying to give advice and strategy? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it was ever strategic. It was just, well, it, you know, in, in that specific instance, the, the client that I just mentioned before, you know, that relationship was built over weekly meetings, weekly, where I'd go down to sit with him and we'd chat. And, and I think it was only when he saw that I was willing to spend as long as it took to build confidence in him, it was only then that he was willing to start entrusting me with that money. Yeah. And I think it was an attribute that he really wanted to get right that, you know, if I gave up after a couple of meetings, then I wouldn't have ever built that trust. But he wanted to see that um, I was, if I was willing to invest the time um, necessary to build trust in him, then I was probably the right person to sort of make some long-term investment decisions for his family. But yeah, I think that, you know, if you have to really think too hard about the person that you need to be in order to build trust, then you're probably not the right person in the first <laughs> place. Like, yeah. like my, I think my family, you know, put those principles in place and then I just decided that, so I, I knew that I had it in there somewhere and that all I had to do was just show it. And you can't show that in one meeting, you know, you can't show that in an expensive suit. You know, sometimes things click really quickly, which is really fortunate. But, you know, good things are worth striving for and worth waiting for. And there have been some instances where, like, first meetings have gone really well and I've tried to rush the process by, like, you know, trying to set up accounts really quick. And, and it never works. Like, you know, smart people need time to sort of get comfortable with things. And so I do my best to just give them that time. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work work out we weren't the right fit but um usually if I have that initial meeting and there's a click then I just sort of tell myself that I'm just going to give that person all the time that they need to come to the decision because you know if they're rushed it's just never it's never good for anyone yeah yeah and so what advice would you give to someone who's looking to find an investment manager or advisor yeah this is a good one Actually, I didn't mention this before, but like one of the big reasons why I actually left the firm before was because they actually started to not want, they started to put in place rules against us investing in the same investment that we advised our clients on. And, you know, they did that because they wanted to remove any potential for someone to take advantage of that process. But it was a really big thing for me. And I think that whenever you're considering whether it be an advisor or investment manager, you know, the first question you should be asking them is, you know, what do you propose for me and what do you invest in yourself? Because anyone who's not willing to eat their own cooking is, I don't think, you know, worth, worth your trust, worth your confidence, worth, worth your business. Nassim Talab, who's you know, a really, really great author, he talks about that risk. He, he talks about this analogy where back in the day, whenever they built a bridge, the engineer would have to stand under it when the first um, horse and cart went over it. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think that like you know, skin in the game, yeah, skin in the game is just so important. And I think our industry is full of people who talk a lot and don't back that up with actions. And so, and it's a really, really simple sort of criteria that you can put in place when you're selecting someone. And then, you know, I think that fees track record resources are also important but then again you know seeking references so talking to people that have used either you know my services or the person who you're looking at for a long period of time is a really useful way to just sort of fast track that experience that you're about to have and try and remove any mistakes yeah and mate, like how do you switch off from work yeah it's like Actually, I should have put that in, in what have been my biggest challenges <laughs> because um, it's been, it's a struggle 
I think it's in my personality to just be really focused on certain things and investing is something that I really, really love. And so when I'm in it, I stay focused. And also when my clients are asking me of something, it's really difficult for me to sort of deviate my, my mind into something a little bit more relaxed until that task is done. But yeah, I mean, I've got just an awesome family and we've got a little daughter. And so staying present with her has been made life much easier with that. And more recently, we've instituted no phones on Saturday, which has been really cool because it's just like, you know, I'd love to say that I can just easily switch off from work, but I can't. So I sort of force myself to by, <laughs> by removing any distractions. Yeah. And that's been awesome. Like, and you can just see the difference that it makes in, um, in the quality of the relationship and the quality of the experience with the family. But yeah, spending time with my wife, Ames, and, um, and Ezzy is, is one. I love exercising. So I've taken up triathlon since Ezzy was born just because it's a lot easier to do from home. And I really, really enjoy that and really enjoy focusing on improving in that. We live by the beach. So any time that I'm either in the sun or in the water is like a really easy way for me to switch off. And I also sort of try and practice meditation and spend lots of time with friends and family, which is also one way. But I like, you know, I just don't think that it's, you know, I list all of those things. And I think that it, I think they help and they're helping and I'm getting much better at it because the more I'm able to switch off, the more I'm able to switch like fully on when I'm at work. Yeah. But it's difficult. It's really hard. But I am, it's, it's something that I'm trying really hard at and getting better at. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a constant challenge for anyone who wants to be really good at what they do is to have, I mean, if you look at people who are the best at what they do, I mean, we just finished watching The Last Dance, Michael Jordan's yeah, documentary. Yeah, I'm watching it now too. Like the yeah. guy was like insane, like his work ethic, his determination, yeah. his state of mind towards winning at all costs. But I'm sure a lot of other things would have suffered as, as a result of that. Have they even, like, I haven't seen them mention his wife or no, um, think... family. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they end up doing it, so don't spoil it. But, like, yeah, I, I, we were asking ourselves that question because we are watching it and we watched it last night. Like, did he have a family, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, I think it's the mark of anyone who's, like, 100% into one certain thing. If they're going to be the absolute best in the world, they're pretty much removing every other piece of distraction from that. Um, uh-huh. And I don't know. I don't know if that's um, – it, it was, yeah, I won't ruin it because you're still going on it. But, yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing his work ethic and just his, um, his drive to win at sort of all costs. Yeah. Well, I, I'm reading um, – it's one of the few books written about him. Um, uh, it's a book called Snowball and it's Warren Buffett's biography. Um, and I like it because it's sort of – less about investing and more about his life. But my goodness, you know, he, he, he amassed, you know, the biggest fortune at, at many times in his life is the wealthiest man in the world. And it's of no fluke. I mean, he was 100% dedicated to that, to that goal or to, you know, to that, to that dream. And there's this interesting snippet where he and Bill Gates had just met and um, they're at a dinner table and the discussion at dinner table was, you know, what's the key to success? And each person had to make the answer, but make it privately. And they had to give just one word, sorry, and put it in a bucket and they drew it out. And Bill Gates and Warren Buffett um, uh, actually used the same word and it was focus. And, you know, I think that it's clear, like, the more you focus on something, the more you're going to get out of it. And so, you know, this has been a bit of a theme of this discussion, but, you know, I've found that definitely with the business, the less that we do, the, the better we're going to be at it. And, um, and certainly with the things that I'm sort of focused on. So like if I'm at work and I'm focusing on it in the sort of, you know, whether it be nine, 10 hours that I'm at work or sort of the varies. if I'm able to focus while I'm doing that time there, and then I get a lot out of it. And then if I'm able to then switch off from work and then focus on my time at home, then the relationships, the quality of the relationships that I have with my family dramatically improves. And so I really think that that's like one of the secrets and keys to life is that if 
you know, reducing the number of things that you're giving energy to so yeah. that you're able to like focus so heartily on them when you're in there. Um, yeah. That's key. And since moving away from the city, you know, we're still, our office is still there and I'm still very much connected with, with them. But most of my time spent away from that, it's been able to like relinquish myself and our family from some of the things that were really just distractions and things that we didn't really love doing anyway that we can focus more on the things that we do and it's been really cool. Yeah, I completely agree with, I mean, especially focus, but also I think something that we both share in common is that sort of passion for, you know, having a healthier lifestyle or trying to <laughs> stay active and, uh, and do something working on your own health. I think that provides such a strong foundation and actually like focus on your own personal health to make sure that you're in a space where you can be productive. And then, and then yeah. from that, that, that's almost like that has to become a non-negotiable you know, yeah. be it with you, if you're, you've talked in the past about like if it's cycling or swimming or running, you know, having that in place allows you to be more productive at work. And then if you're more productive at work, you feel productive and you can actually switch off. I mean, for me, yeah. that's, yeah, I have to have routine in that sense because otherwise if that's gone, like everything else sort of suffers. Yeah, for sure. I, I like really wonder, um, you know, um, at those investment banks, um, the people who work 14, 15, sometimes 20-hour days, I struggle to see how they can be efficient during those times. And I just wonder if they instituted limits on the amount of time that those people had to spend at work, the difference that it would make, because mm. they would force themselves to be a lot more efficient and focused on the job while they're there, but then also would allow them to then have other facets of their life outside of work that they could focus on and probably be a lot more sane and a lot more healthy to come back and be more efficient at work. Um, I've always wondered that, um, but, you know, that's the culture of those banks. So yeah, I'll leave a, those problems for them. To them such, <laughs> to, such, to a, I don't know, such a divisive sort of thing or completely against, I guess, probably what you and I believe. Mate, you said you were reading Warren Buffett's biography at the moment. What are some of your favorite yeah. books that you've read? I mean, from an investment perspective, Seth Klarman's book, Margin of Safety, has had, and Benjamin Graham's book, obviously, The Intelligent Investor, has had the single biggest impacts on me from professionally and the books that I make a point of reading at least once a year, sometimes a little bit more often especially the most important chapters. I think in terms of impactful, Eckhart Tolle's book, I think that that had a really big impact on me when I read it. Um, it wasn't A New Earth. What's the, what's the other one? Uh, the Power of Now. Yeah, The Power of Now. Like, you know, a lot of what you and I were just talking about rings true with that discussion. I read it when I was on a trip. Actually, soon after I met Ames, my wife, and it just clarified like a lot of the questions that were on in my mind and a lot of the things that I would stress about. So, and the essential message is, you know, all that matters is what is going on right now. So you and I are having this discussion, there are no problems that exist. Um, you know, and so all we need to really think about and focus on is, is this moment right now and this discussion and, and life's pretty good if, if that's all you focused on. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, and it just sort of not, not just like made me feel a lot better about certain questions that I had in my mind, but also I think, think allowed me the freedom to just like be happier in whatever moment that I'm in and sort of reduce the stresses and anxieties that I had about whether it be past issues or potential future issues that probably won't even exist and to just worry about them if need be when they do pop up. So I think that that certainly had a massive impact and I'll probably think of a couple of other books, but I just can't think of any at the moment. That's all right. Now, if you weren't an advisor, what would you be? <laughs> I'd love to be like a professional sportsman. I really love, I, I, even though I, I'm not that talented, I just like <laughs> the thought, the thought of like being able to just train full time and dedicate myself to a craft and to see how good I can get, which just sounds so awesome. Um, you know, to just, you know, train and then rest and sleep and have really good nutrition. No, nah, but in all seriousness, I, I don't know, like I, I really enjoy design and I think that, if I ever ch 
change my career would be something around you know design and architecture like probably architecture uh like i think i give aims the shit sometimes by like always saying oh look at that you know commenting on houses and buildings and features and stuff (laughs) like that and she she always thinks that i'm talking about wanting us to move house (laughs) 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 yeah (laughs) no i love my house but um yeah, and also, you know, you, you think of like... Actually, on that, I think I took stock yeah. of your mail today, which was the Houses magazine and put it on, <laughs> put it on yeah. your desk in the office. So, yeah, yeah. I, can, uh, I can attest to that um, that piece of information that, yeah, you're definitely into it. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. And, and you also think about the actual doing of the job. And yeah. I think that I'm no doubt that you know, dealing with the clients and their, you know, preferences would be really demanding. And I think that architecture would probably be a lot better if you were just designing houses and buildings for yourself. But but the thought of like sitting in an environment and spending most of your time just creating something new from nothing all the way through and then seeing that finished product that's going to be there forever. Like that to me sounds like a really fun thing to do during, but then like a super satisfying thing um, to have done afterwards. And um, I sort of view building a portfolio in a similar way. Like it's like constant building blocks. And one day I'll be able to look back and say, wow, like that's what we created over time through, you know, that miracle of compounding. But um, yeah, I think architecture would be fun. Cool, mate. So on the miracle of compounding, can you uh, give me a bit of background on that? <laughs> sure. The miracle of compounding. If you type into Google, it, it says that Einstein calls it, I think, like the eighth wonder of the world. I think that's one of those Google quotes that <laughs> it's actually made up. But, but yeah, I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. The one person that, that really, really got it, and I think why he was so focused and, and such as so frugal in his early days was Warren Buffett. And, and there's this like in, really interesting stat that over 99% of Buffett's wealth was actually made after his 52nd birthday. But what's interesting is that the actual annual returns on a percentage basis that he received, he, he achieved after his, his 50th birthday were much, much less than the ones that he achieved before that. And so it's this concept that you know, the, more that you, the more money you've got, the easier returns are to come by. And so like a really simple calc is that if you, you know, you start with a hundred grand and you achieve 8% a year in that first year, you've made $8,000, but by doing exactly the same thing in by the, tw- by the 10th year, that same return gives, gives you 15 grand. And by the 20th year, that same return gives you 35 grand on that same pool of money. And so the returns that you're able to actually achieve from a pool of capital become exponentially easier as time goes on. And so like the concept is really easy to understand and lots of people go, oh yeah, yeah, compounding, I get it, I'll I'll, I'll make more in the future. But the thing is, is that, and this is why Buffett, especially in the early days, was so reluctant to give money away or to spend too much is because he just wanted to keep as much as he could in there. And it's also why he had such a dogmatic approach to risk because like the key rules to compounding are obviously you need a positive return. I mean, that's a given. But the second thing is, is that you don't want to spend your capital because when you spend it, it loses its compounding effect. So that's obviously a really difficult thing for people to do, not spend it. But then the third one, which is probably the biggest, which is, you know, the one that we can have an impact on as advisors and investors is like avoid the big mistake. And so, you know, compounding, obviously if you start with a hundred and then invest in something great and it turns into 10 million, then compounding can work for you after that. But very few people have the ability to actually do that. And so our philosophy revolves around, you know, really just trying to earn consistent positive returns over time, you know, our clients, their spending habits is completely up to them, but we do encourage them to spend, you know, less than the actual cash flow that it's earned. But then the, the big one is just avoiding mistakes because if we're able to do that and then focus on that long-term, that idea of sort of long-term orientation and leaving the money in there for as long as possible, you know, that 8% return in the 20th year is 
literally over three times more than that same return that you're getting in that first year. And so it really does become a miracle. It's hard to like see in that first year. So that's why the disciplined and long-term investors are the ones that end up being so successful because they get it. They know that they know that their payday will come one day, and it does. And so that's why a lot of people coin it a miracle. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So, in closing, who's someone remarkable that you know that we should speak to? Who's someone remarkable? Well, you've spoken to my cousin I Megan, Megan's uh, our first guest. So, yeah. So that was really cool. I interviewed my grandfather recently. Um, he's since passed away, so. He's off the list. There's some clients that I'd, I'd love to see you interview and um, I might have a chat to them and see if they'd be interested in going through the process. Yeah, that'd be really fascinating. Yeah, great. And mate, what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Favorite quote? So actually both have come from my dad. Like the, the Teddy Roosevelt quote, the man in the arena, it's actually Dave as well, but like that's obviously being done to death, but it's, it should it deserves to be because yeah. I think that it's just so eloquent and every chance that I get I give it a read. But in terms of like ones that sort of personally hit home, Dad one day wrote well not wrote, he printed off or he cut out of a newspaper a quote by Steve Wall and he framed it and, and put it on my bedroom wall and you know, the paraphrase of the quote was just that, you know, I'm not the most gifted athlete the world has seen but I've pride myself on giving my best for myself and the team and that's what gets him through every day and you know I just think that like what we can control is what we give and that sort of set this tone for my life like it made things so much simple because it was like you know I can't control how good I am or naturally gifted I am with certain things but you know, if I just do my best, then I can be at least proud of that. And at least I know that whatever comes out at the end of the day is the best that I could have achieved. So yeah. um, I'm so thankful for, to dad for doing such like a small, simple gesture that had a really impactful, was really impactful for me. And I think a key to that was that it was the only time he ever did that. <laughs> like, um, so, so it was impactful. Um, I took notice and you know, yeah, it was, it, was, it was really cool, very special. And I remember it always. Oh, that's great. And finally, where can people learn more about you? Yeah, so, so we've got a blog, a blog or a list of articles called Look Down, Not Up. We've also, and you know, we just add to that from time to time. It's not sort of a core practice, but whenever we think that something's worth writing about, we pop something up there. And I think it's sort of indicative of our philosophy at Legano. Yeah. And yeah, we'll uh, we've also written a, yeah, we've also written a book and I'm really proud of that. It was a long process and we wrote that because we felt that we stood for something, especially in difference to our larger peers, like the ones that I came from. And I wanted to, as people were thinking about dealing with us and, thinking about whether they should trust us. I didn't want it to just be about words. I wanted to like put down our principles and articulate them in a really solid, tangible thing that they could keep and take home and hold me to account yeah. um, down the path. And we've got lots of copies. So if anyone ever wants one of those, then I'd be really happy to share. But you know, one of the beauties of having a small business and a small number of clients is that we've got time. So we've got the website and it's got my number on it. And, um, happy to talk to new people it's cool mate thanks again for being so generous with your time really enjoyed talking to you no thanks mate and i'm like really proud of you for 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 doing this you know like i think that this is one of those ideas that i'm sure that you had for a long time and i'm sure that lots of other people have oh wouldn't it be cool to do a podcast one day (laughs) (laughs) you're you're mad enough to do it and, and i think that you're really good at it um because you are humble and you're feel like you're legitimately interested in what other people have to show so yeah mate thanks so much for having me on I'm really happy to be a part of it thanks mate appreciate it cheers cheers okay thank you for listening to this episode of discover someone remarkable if you enjoyed it please share it with your network to support us please subscribe and leave a five star review 
To learn more about us or the guests on this show, visit dsrb.com.au slash podcast. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. We hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.